Hi, Kat. Hi, Livia. I have to say this conversation with uh, Joe Bill between the three of us, I felt like a, uh, <laughs> I sort of felt like a, like a kid finally getting to sit at the, at the adult's table. And it was just such a treasure and such a delight and such a, a joy. I'm glad you enjoyed yourself. I, you're being very polite. I, I think many of the things that Joe, Bill and I were talking about happened when we were improvising in our youths before you were born. It's you're true. Nodding politely at me. <laughs> I know. I, I I say that with a tone in my voice, like I should be weary and old and, and feel sort of um, slightly ashamed or embarrassed about it. But I actually, you know, I think that's a trope that we have in our society, which in fact doesn't actually feel real for me. And so I'm going to flip that a little bit. I'm, I'm so delighted and proud that there's such a rich legacy and history and treasure trove of stories that we've accumulated over the years and that there are people like Joe Bill that I've actually never met, but it feels like we have such a, a shared delicious history together. Yeah. And that definitely comes out in the conversation. You know, you say that you have all these great shared stories and a lot of those stories intersect with these, um, these kind of these luminaries, these uh, guiding lights in the the improv world. Yeah, lots and lots of name dropping in this episode. To, if you're if you happen to be part of the little pond that we swim around in, you'll recognize a lot of the folks we mention. If you don't, there's a great gift of this moment in history that we're living through, which is not can, not only can you put their names into Google, and we'll list them in the show notes and. Uh, you know, just find out who they are. They're also many of them accessible, actually accessible to you in a way that they never would be in the past. Because as the world of performance improv has adapted to the COVID years, a lot of performing has moved online. So many of these folks, many of these theaters, like the Annoyance Theater, many of these folks like Patty Styles or um, I, I mean, I, now I'm starting to listen to everybody <laughs> yeah. um, have, have been available online and Ken Adams. So you can study with these great teachers. You can watch the shows of, of these great theaters right on your screen, right in front of you. So I, I don't know how much longer that will be true as we start to, you know, crack open our physical doors. I hope it will continue to be true, at least to some extent because it's been a wonderful gift to connect in these ways. Go go look yeah. people up and explore yeah. for yourselves. Yeah. And especially look up, uh, we'll talk with, with Joe a little bit about his online offerings and dig in a little bit more about his story chain, which is his ongoing um, fantastic online offering, one of the many um, that, that we'll dive into. Absolutely. So let's do it. Because we, we've been wanting to have this conversation for decades with each other, and it was great to have you along. And then we'll come back and talk with all of our listeners on the flip side. See you on the other end. As the kids say. <laughs> they do. I am truly, truly delighted that we are here face-to-face -face and it's ridiculous that this is the first time that we are actually really talking to each other. Yeah, it feels 
like 25 years and coming at least. At least, at least. Do you have a dare to be human story that you'd like to start us off with? I mean, I have lots of stories. So some of them are, you know, personal and vulnerable and kind of deep. Some of them are around like mental health and the role that that growing up in the family I grew up in. And there's a foundational story I can tell that I'm fine sharing, but I don't know if it's too heavy. Uh, but like that was my first, it's, it's actually the, the story, the story that whenever I get a new therapist, and luckily I've had this one for three years, <laughs> I, I usually start with this story. I'm like five or six years old and I'm in the kitchen with my mother and my mother had a buffet of mental health issues going on. And there was always a little television in the kitchen that had black and white TV, even though there was still color TV in the, this would have been like the late sixties, I think. I just remember we would watch I Love Lucy a lot. And so all of a sudden I'm at the little table and my mother kind of goes over there's a sink and in front of the sink is a window and she would look out the window and sometimes she would talk kind of, you know, to the birds or whatever. But then I don't remember this as a movie. I remember it like, like little clips of films, but she starts kind of talking and monologuing in a way that is strange, but I don't know what's going on. And I'm kind of amused. I was an amused child as the oldest of five and she then turns around and this monologue turns into this, I have the words now, but I didn't have the words then, but it turns into a little bit of kind of a manic, kind of a rant. It's almost gibberish, but then it's like heightened, elevated, kind of like laughing, cackling nonsense. And I just thought, oh, and I felt myself kind of detach and just be an observer because I didn't understand what was going on. And part of me thought she was playing with me or trying to amuse me. And then like that, in like two seconds, she transitions into this horrific, like moaning, sobbing. What I now know is a nervous breakdown. So now I become fully detached, fully dissociated from this moment. And this is when I discovered what I called my emergency room doctor or this is when I first was aware of dissociation from trauma. And what I decided really quick, there was a binary. There was this horrific sobbing, moaning like a wounded animal. And then she would swing back to this. She would like talk her way out of that into this crazy manic laughter. And what I decided was these are both horrible, but I prefer the laughter. And I didn't feel anything. I was. It was just a decision to let's see if we can get to this laughter thing because i had evidence as a child that i could make people laugh so i started doing stuff to try to keep her in laughter figuring that would maybe be the way out and she would start to go back towards this the sadness moaning wailing and then i would just do more stuff and i'd like i'd, I'd mimic her going in like that and i'd try to bring her back and i don't know how it ended but in my mind, as a six-year-old child, I felt like I had control over it. And I felt like I was able to get her into a place of laughter to bring her at a lower level of laughter and then like exit out sort of back to normal. And as the story goes, this is when I believe I became an improviser and an improv director. <laughs> um, and so all of that is to say that an overriding thought in my head as a child 
is that I was born into the wrong family and I needed to escape. And I, I feel like we're making up for lost time, so I want to give you sort of a, a foundational piece of the Joeville origin story. Yeah. Well, thank you. We're very honored that you would mm -hmm. bring such an important story with you. Mm -hmm. The first question that comes to mind is, very precious story to you if you start all your relationship therapeutic relationships <laughs> with it what rather than my making up a story about it why do you think that feels like such a seminal important story to you i think it's because one piece of that is many of us i think that are in entertainment and comedy and improv and humans in general we we have that thing where we we look for partners that are like our opposite gender parent in an effort to change or fix that parent. And so that was, there's another sort of therapy line of this that goes mm -hmm. into, I'm really excellent at finding women that don't appear to be my mother, but then end up being my mother. <laughs> Part of my therapy is like feeling again. And so improvisation for me to sort of jump forward and I will, I'll jump around. <laughs> Improvisation for me and landing in the place where I am, especially in the last 10, 20 years, on stage and my preference to do more theatrical or dramatic or improvised plays is because for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes, three acts, whatever, it's a safe place for me to feel every emotion with a person that I trust. And then off stage, I can go back to thinking my emotions as my therapist says. <laughs> oh, I that resonates so much for me. I feel like I was attracted to being an actor because it was a place where emotions were valued mm -hmm. and where I was getting exercise at accessing them and mm -hmm. feeling them and expressing them and being uh, rewarded accessing and feeling them when that was not at all my experience of my life with my family mm, yeah and then actually that's where i found improv too because even in my classical acting classes people you know, my teachers would say don't think so much or <laughs> <laughs> we are related <laughs> i was like that's not helpful what is that <laughs> yeah you, you, i can't prove a don't what are you doing exactly right right yeah yeah, and I think, did you also have, for me, in this context of, like, I'm, I don't belong here, I'm in the wrong family, I'm, I'm the oldest of five kids, I'm named after my father, who was named after his father, who was <laughs> named after his father, all three of which were college football players and, you know, uh, New Yorker, in-your-face, five-sport people, love, you know, fight, violence, Irish-German battle, um, and I like hats and costumes and singing. <laughs> So that doesn't work on a football field. <laughs> wow. But I found that once I discovered I could make people laugh, I found that sort of humor was a core of everything I could do to keep the attention off of me. Because my father wasn't like a constantly abusive type person, but my dad was a Notre Dame football player. And because I'm the oldest, I took a couple of amazing epic ass kickings in front of the entire family to show them what would happen if they got out of line. How nice for you. <laughs> so cool. I mean, I guess that's why I liked professional wrestling when I was a kid. <laughs> but I mean, even in that, 
I never remember being afraid. I just remember being defiant. And I remember thinking my, I can cuss, right? Oh, <laughs> like my fuck you to him was like, you can throw me down the stairs. You can punch me in the face. You can pick me up by my hair. I'm going to add a little extra so I can have control. And so, so it's like, if you're going to throw me into the wall, I'm going with more, you know, I'm adding, <gasps> I'm adding to what you're doing. And then I'm going to make, I'm going to have a hella like slide down the wall in a very dramatic way. Often on my report cards, it was Joe does not respect authority and Joe doesn't take things seriously enough because the construct in which I was raised, which was like Irish Catholic repress everything, talk about nothing, don't think, don't feel, don't speak, you're not hurt, rub dirt on it, keep going. I thought that was a bullshit system before I even knew what a bullshit system was. When I was, a, I was, I guess I was in sixth or seventh grade, I heard George Carlin for the first time and I heard the word hypocrite and hypocrisy and I didn't know what it was. And when I learned what hypocrisy was, I cried because, oh. I, because there was a word for something that oh. I had seen and I didn't know there was a word for it. Oh. So there's a bunch of stories, but I also think that that's why, well, I mean, it's like ever since the annoyance, since my chapter of the annoyance ended in 2000 and Mark and I started doing Basprov, it's been so important for me to primarily follow improvisation of truth rather than improvisation yeah. of comedy where comedy is a consequence. It's interesting to me to hear you talk about your relationship to comedy or being able to make your mother laugh or even, you know, the extra dramatic flair that you put on that you're talking about with your dad, because often we hear about comedians, right, or class clowns as mm -hmm. attention seeking. We think of comedy as attention seeking and you you're talking about it as sort of the opposite. Yeah, I think one thing we discovered, we had a guy at the annoyance who was really his passion was haunted houses and i've always loved special effects uh, my mother took me to see the exorcist in sixth grade and i was like how did her head turn around <laughs> not disturbed at all yeah. wow but to your point something that i learned in the 90s working on these haunted houses is there's two ways to get attention there's look at me and there's don't look at me mm. and both of those will draw focus and that binary in a haunted house the things that are sometimes the creepiest are the things that they're not overtly seeking to be witnessed. So only a select group of people might see that person under the stairs who's horrific. <gasps> and then, you know, if one person in the party does and four others didn't, did you see that guy under the stairs? What are you talking about? We got to go back. Uh -huh. For sure, I wanted to stay out of trouble. I wanted to stay out of, I wanted to control my own agency yeah. of existence. And it became apparent that I was, because I didn't have any older siblings to protect me. Um, humor was also a way to keep bullies from kicking my ass. Right. <laughs> I very early figured out I could make more fun of myself than they could. There is a way that humor is so powerful, right? That you have control if you can sort of see at this extra level or change the dynamic. I mean, right in your story, it's right there, right? You were able to yeah. literally affect the dynamic, the reality of what was happening. Yeah, I think somewhere in the giant formula basket is tragedy plus acceptance equals there's some humor there. If you're going to accept something tragic, something heavy, something life-threatening, something dangerous that is happening to you, in that acceptance, well, my therapist says, <laughs> <laughs> she says the two most powerful 
coping mechanisms are humor and intellectualization. And so I have both of those. And so some of it is, I think it's just, how do you maintain some type of sense of control if something bad is happening? I think it's also good for not breaking or corpsing on stage. <laughs> My Achilles heel. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had to learn to lighten up. There's some people that want to play the giggles, and I was really adamant against that for a while. I hate it. Yeah, I, I mean, if we're playing for truth, then my preference is let's do this because yeah. because it's it's almost impossible. But if you can do it, it's the greatest feeling in the oh, world. It's great. And if you do it and it's not great, then the danger is you're just a self-absorbed asshole <laughs> who's not interested in entertaining at all. But I don't care. I've had enough <laughs> success where it's just like I'm going for this. But another another consequence of the last 20 years is I noticed somewhere along the way, and this became, you know, this sort of went hand in hand with my therapy journey. Somewhere along the way, I became not a great beginning improv teacher because I lost the curiosity and the awe and the joy of that discovery. And I didn't know why I couldn't be excited to see light bulbs go off over the heads of people who are just walking in going, what's improv? And I wasn't interested. It took me like 10 years to figure out. It's like, oh, there's something inside of me that's blocking just childish play and fun. And mm. then it's like somatic journey to the body keeps the score. <laughs> and what have I been through? And oh, I was hurt. Oh, God. How do I admit something that I wasn't allowed to admit 40 years ago? And how dare I? And, you know, damn it. Irish shame. <laughs> So, are, so do you enjoy teaching beginning improv now? I I don't seek it out. Yeah. What I do enjoy is if I have a class of twenty people, and one of those people for one of those people, it's their first improv class, and I'm teaching something that's in the realm of of acting or like I have shortcuts around Meisner that are kind of my own thing. I'm also a neuroscience nerd, and so I use neuroscience and designing some stuff. And so there was, there's truly stuff that I can do that somebody who's been improvising for 30 or 40 years could do with somebody who's never done it. And they can, I can get them to a place for sure. I'm a, I'm a teaching nerd. And if it's like, you're going to teach some beginners, I would know what to do. And then it's that thing where I think for a lot of us, just starting is the hard thing. But once you're in it, you're fine. I think now, like, especially given the last two years and the last year of therapy here in the pandemic. I think I could find myself into that joy, but you know, it's like zoom is for me. Zoom is like methadone. Like I, I need to get back to the junk. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. So all of this just makes me acutely aware of my mind is very, very busy right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm leaving space for Olivia. If she wants to get a word in edgewise. Oh, I'm well, here's, here's the thing. Uh, Kat and I were talking the other day about this actual process of, of doing podcast interviews and peeking into my own whatever, um, where I, if we want to go back into childhood, whatever stuff, my role has always kind of been uh, very much the, what does the scene need? And I tend to over rotate on like now, now it's like, if it's going fine, I don't need to, <laughs> I don't need to interject. I don't need to do anything. Um, yeah. You know, whereas, you know, when I was growing up, the thing that I would interject or do would be some sort of comedy to deflate whatever was happening. Um, mm -hmm. So, 
we just talk to too many funny people who have the same neuroses that I do who are either going <laughs> to, they're either going to make a joke or they're going to intellectualize something. And I was like, oh, that's what I was going to do. <laughs> I was going to interject with something like that to like change the energy or diffuse or uh, intellectualize something, but they got there first. All right. So I'll just, I'll just let that happen. <laughs> yeah. I think if, um, <clears throat> If this, if we go meta for a second, like if this whole thing was like an improv show that we're doing, but it's, you know, in the style of podcast, it's um, what I tend to do. I do have my annoyance roots and that is like, oh, we start, you know, start by bringing something. And so, and I didn't know if I was going to start with that story, but it's like, I thought I was, and then I need a hot read on the two of you. And it's, and in my mind, it's because I definitely have the pleaser thing too. It's like, is this what these two need right now? Is this what these two want from me right now? Okay. And then I can push pack. I've practiced enough. I can push past the fear of that. But just like the beginning of any like organic long form or musical or whatever, it's like, okay, it's kind of by default my story because I'm the guest. But it's also once we get the initial platform set, now we need to check in and like, okay, what other things do we have? And like you being an objective set of eyes, if anything spurs you, you know, to offer something into like part two, then uh, that's like what we just did. And lo and behold, what we found is like, oh, we're more alike than we thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, just when you were saying the pleasing thing, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about the sort of people that I've tended to collect and the people that were around are all very, and improvisers too, are all very aware of that. And this can result in sort of, I'm, I'm thinking of, conversations with my husband where we're both you know we won't land on where we want to order dinner from because we genuinely <laughs> do want to make sure it's the one that the other person likes yeah. and it just becomes this thing where we 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 sort of need that person to just push in some other way and just kind of start because we will just kind of go in circles because we we just want to like make sure everyone's okay like is everyone okay? Is everybody okay i don't care like whatever happens as long as everyone's okay <laughs> it's that reminds me um my daughter's mother is a libra and she's very into the horoscope and you know all the numerology and whatever and she's married to a buddy of mine that i used to do improv with and we're a big hippie happy family mm -hmm. But the, my favorite Libra joke, and I like I know enough astrology to speak it, but my favorite Libra joke is, you're not a Libra, are you? Neither <laughs> yeah, of us. Yeah. Oh, no. I was just gonna Neither of us. Oh. Yeah. But if, if there's Libras that'll listen to this, <laughs> yes. uh, they'll laugh at this. My favorite Libra joke is, what's the worst question you could ask a Libra? What do you want for dinner tonight? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> because it's just scales going back and forth oh, and back and forth. <laughs> But then the best question you can ask a Libra, for example, is, what do you want for dinner, Mexican or Italian? Now they've got two things that are specific that they can measure. Mm -hmm. So then they can triangulate on those choices to see what they really want. And then you've given them a chance to weigh something specific. And so then if you're, I'm a Taurus. And so like, I like, I don't mind a slow process, but I do know what I like. And I'll go to the same restaurant thinking I'm going to order something different, but I always order the same thing because that's what I like, which is very boring to a Libra. So I also believe that improv is a service industry. So if like, if I know <laughs> information, like for instance, you're a Libra, 
it's a pretty good guess that I know how to give an offer that has two specifics rather than an open. And that's usually going to be a good gift for a Libra. Oh, okay. So this was fun. So I think Kat and I should tell you what our signs are and you should say what improv offer you would give to us at the start. Nice. Okay. Um, so I'm a Pisces. Oh, well, here's the thing. Here's the one thing that seems to be true about Pisces. They hate injustice and they're loud drunks. <laughs> I think you're right on, you got one of those right. Guess which one? Well, here's the thing. No, you got both of them right. The thing is, I would say that the second, the latter changes as the Pisces age. For sure. After some feedback. Used to be, well, not, not even feedback, just like now, just tired. Now it's just, hey, I feel it. Like going to sleep. I'm 30, I'm turning 30. I. Two, three, I'm at the age where I don't remember now, 32 or 33 on the 18th. So oh, yeah, yeah, that's April, about right. So yeah, I'm ready to go to bed. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, I mean, that happens to all of us. We do get, yeah. we do get tired. And this, am I, well, I have some very dear friends that are Pisces and my daughter's godmother is a Dominican Pisces. She also, Pisces also have awesome laughs. So if you can get a Pisces to laugh, it's just like, like they will laugh in a robust and lengthy enough way that you can even bathe in it a little bit. So that's a, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a cool Pisces thing that I know. So then what I would, if I was going to improvise with you, <clears throat> because I kind of present as old straight white guy, though I've, I've got secrets and surprises in store, but I might present as somebody who's like authority person presenting something that's an injustice, mm-hmm. presenting something establishment that you and give you a seam or a crack so that you can, we can do a scene where you tear down the patriarchy and I give you the, uh, the volleyball bump as the dumbass executive that's uh, not as smart as you. That would be- I wish you could all see Livia's delighted that. face right now. Oh yeah, I'm I think that was delighted. a win. I think it was, and I'm actually, I'll, I'll, I'll end with this and then I wanna hear what you would do for Kat. Um, I remember doing a scene with Michael Burns during a Mopco rehearsal where it was basically exactly that scene. We were at a, we were like at a coffee table in a meeting room and I was like a new, new buck joining whatever. It was like a law firm or something. And he had been there for a long time. And it was just, I remember playing that character and ending that scene and just being like, I feel great. And I would never talk to anyone in real life like that. (laughs) 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 But that's what the stage is for. Exactly. Yep. It's therapeutic, but it's not therapy. Yep. Yep. What awesome. do you, Kat? I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to see if you have the reaction that everybody always has when I tell them. Oh, God, don't say Scorpio. Oh, I'm so glad you said Scorpio. No, I'm a Gemini. Oh. There it is. I see the face. <laughs> you haven't Describe made the, the sound face. yet. What is the face? Everybody goes like, oh. So there's a couple of things about Geminis. Um one thing that tends to be true about Geminis in social situations is when you first approach you, you first encounter them, you have one minute. <laughs> <laughs> They're not mean people, but they, but Geminis do, do have the capacity to be interested in many things at once. <laughs> in a way, I would go the opposite uh, with a Gemini and that, so I might make an offer where my first offer to you would be something that would disappoint you. (laughs) (laughs) Because also Gemini's another one of those signs, like Pisces, Gemini's and Cancer's are all very, very justice aware. So I might 
and I don't know because like we're not in the scene yet, but I yeah. that I, I would probably for sure we would be, you know, we know each other and I fucked up and, and some of it is forgivable, but some of it is not. And so with Gemini's, if you can get into whatever the circumstance is, what does this mean for our relationship within a minute, then we got something and we can go forever. But if we Amen. don't get to the if we don't get to the interpersonal inside of the circumstantial then it's you know squirrel shiny star <laughs> i'm definitely squirrel shiny star i'm definitely squirrel prone <laughs> well, well and i will tell you that on on stage you are definitely very cut the shit what is the deep emotional why are we here why are we talking why are we seeing this thing what's happening between these two people that i I noticed that in the choices that you make on stage it's like nope we're getting to it like how do we get to it so the yeah so that felt rang very true for me yeah, yeah. I saw you do that I watched the um post-apocalypse synergy theater show that you were in ah. and I was so thankful for you and that show because I think you know there's different styles of play <laughs> and so and I had not I had not seen a lot of synergy shows before and I, I watched one i watched another one ironically there is a style overlap between people that are sort of johnstone narrative educated to begin and annoyance and that is camp but annoyance owns that it's camp and johnstone doesn't it's just it's like there's a campiness to synergy and i i said to ken after this thing it's like oh my god this is such it's such camp and i just even want it to be more camp and he was like question mark what camp yeah. hmm. and, and i'm so what uh, did you mean by camp um, broad, just like broad mm -hmm. acting stuff. Like it's a, it's something that it's a thing that Patty and I play with when Patty and I yeah. play, because it's when you learn narrative. I mean, Keith's a playwright and a director, so a lot of the suggestions and learning comes with notes that are objective from outside and right. tending to the the structure of story. Right. This is this is where I drop in. Um, the metaphor I use for all my neuroscience nerdness is that in each of our heads, we have an engineer and a jazz musician. Hmm. So the best narrative is an engineering proposition that brings jazz out. And yep. the best organic improvisation is a jazz proposition with evidence of engineering. Does that make sense without a big discussion? Say the last sentence again. Heralds are a mess when it's a bunch of people showing off, <clears throat> playing deep self-involved shit and trying to get a laugh or, you know, just being engaging in dynamic shifts and like blowing everything as far out so we can see if it comes together but then yeah. when it often doesn't come together it, you're kind of left with what are we watching right what did i just see this but and ironically when i first came to chicago the first my first five or six years in chicago were teachers teachers telling me forget about the story don't tell the story right you're trying right. to do a story too quick right. so then I, I i i had to learn jazz right <clears throat> um so and oftentimes, if there's a narrator, if there's there's a Keith figure whose job is to take care of the audience, yes, it's the onus isn't on the actors to do this deep dive into hell that Dell kind of put us into, which is like, you know, I'll never forget studying with Dell, and there were times where a scene just sucked, like you knew thirty seconds in this scene is shit, and he would let it go for like fifteen minutes. And there would be people who weren't experienced enough to know how to work their way out and they would just melt down and it was almost a form of cruelty. But in a way, that's a form of cruelty that everybody can learn from and like an old Russian theater type of Sure, way, sure. Right? So the camp part of it is 
in the presentation of a story, we can play a little bit more broad because we're just actors having fun. And the truth is framed by the proposition of we will build a story for you. We will tell a story for you. And then depending on what kind of nerd you are, like which story, whose story is it? Is it one of the seven, nine or 12, depending on the school, because there's only that many stories. So then to drop back into neuroscience, when humans are leading with their engineer brain, they become blind to jazz opportunities. Mm. And when humans are leading with their jazz brain, they become blind to engineering opportunities. And so, you know, as we say, however the show starts is that's pretty much going to be how it goes, unless you've got some really, really experienced people. But to go back to that show that I saw you do, I think it was in a bus station. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. The last four people on earth. So the, just for our listeners. So the premise is there are four people, there's been whatever the event is, and they have, they're in some shelter that has enabled them to be the last four people on earth and it's real time 45 minute show in real time just those four people on screen and i've also since i crossed 50s i'll be 59 in a couple months but like in the last eight years I've, i've also become very objective myself and like not judgy so i'm like okay what's going on in the heads of these people what's going on and when i saw you what i saw you offer was people were very much into the circumstances of everything And then when you entered in, it's like, wait a minute, what the hell's going on inside of all of us? And what are these internal stakes? And I, and I literally, because I'm this nerd, I had you on my, my, uh, my footrest, uh, whatever, not a duvet, not a Davenport. What do you call that thing where you put your ottoman? Ottoman. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I had my computer and I'm watching you on my earphones and I literally jumped in and I'm like, thank you, cat cop. Yes. That's so nice. So many times. So many times oh, I thought that internally. That's sweet. So well, you know, it's interesting. And again, for our listeners, so we've referenced Del Close, who is a genius, seminal visionary in the world of improvisational theater out of Chicago. And Ken Adams, who is another real thought leader. And it's fun, been fun this year in the pandemic to see his following grow and people become sort of more aware of him. He's had a, a much narrower track of awareness, I think, and followers. Yeah. in the in the world than someone like Del Close or Keith Johnstone. Yeah. But he's I, I feel like he's the same kind of thought leader in some ways. He wrote a book called How to Improvise a Full Length Play. He's the creator of the story spine, which is sort of made good in the world by being popular, you know, popularized by Pixar and some other folks. And he has his own company, Synergy Theater. His sort of specialty is creating one narrative full-length plays i would say he's even more engineer than keith as i receive him absolutely so so he's very much and even on his page like i the thing i love about the talking improv with the synergy theater page is he's very much a an improv engineer nerd and the questions that he posed sometimes i just don't wanna because they're I think there's there are some questions that I think are provocative for younger improvisers, especially young males with a need to be right and, you know, (laughs) and give empirical truths about something where there are no empiricals. Um, But there's it does for some reason because of the engineering nature, which is really based in logic and like, let's just weigh some things here. Yeah, it doesn't invite the, you know, theatrical testosterone, I guess I would call it, where it really does facilitate like a lot of type of sharing. I mean, story spine, I mean, there you go. That's engineering, right? Exactly. Um, And 
But he also understands when you hear him talk about a class that he talks and about people that played a scene and it was such a beautiful scene. And what he does is he describes the skeleton and then he fills out the flesh and the bones with the emotion and the psych like everything I would ask for. And then it's that thing where it's like, and you train corporate people too, right? Yes. That's... Yeah. So, it, you know, like the analytical, the analytical brain, it's just like, what time is it? Here's how you build a watch. So Ken has a little bit of that thing where it's like, he'll describe this whole thing. And it's like, Ken, we weren't there. Like, I don't need to hear the whole thing. I, I think what, what's true of Ken is that he's, he's actually this special kind of genius mm -hmm. where he can think, as you say, like an engineer, he can think in this way and see in this way, which I believe inside his own head feels really simple. And I, I think what he's blind to is how not simple and obvious that is to other people. So when he says, look here, I'm laying it out for you, just do this. Yep. He thinks he's providing like, here's the simple, easy step. Like when someone else says, dare to be obvious or just be present and yes, and the next one thing that he, he sort of presents a lot of things in that way. I think for sure he fits in that niche genius that follows more in Keith. Mick Napier is like this, and he follows a little bit more in Dell. So like I'm I'm as much or more influenced by Mick and the annoyance thing, but also by Dell and also by Keith. Like I'm kind of like next generation Randy Dixon if we're going American <laughs> deep cut nerd. I think Ken's brilliant. And I think he's blind to his own intellect. And it's that thing where psychologically, we just presume that everybody thinks like us. That's, you know, mm. human truth number one. I think that everybody's aware of all this psychological stuff. And if I, if I describe the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and it's you know, <laughs> basic three functions, it's kind of a duh. And then people look at me like, what? Huh? Dorsal what? And I'm already past it. Dell would do his thing like, well, of course, we've all read every book in the world. And this refers to a book that was written in the 17th century by da, 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 where there was where witchcraft was briefly. <laughs> what are you talking about? Anyway, there's something about being an improv teacher. And I reject the term guru, too. But I mean, I've been doing it long enough where, OK, I know my place in it. And I'm now becoming one of the new old guys. And I'm, I am good at what I do. And I just notice now that I will walk around the street talking out loud to myself about improv. <laughs> <laughs> and I, in this generation of us that are all sort of like in our 50s going into our 60s, you know, there's like 10 times the amount of us that there were 30 sure. years ago. So the fun part is seeing other people with sort of this burden that's also awakening to like me and you haven't met for like ever but it's like i Crazy. feel so i have such a familial sense of oh my god you must carry some of the same shit that i carry but i've got nobody to talk to about yeah. it it's lovely isn't it it's we... really yeah yeah it's really really great and patty styles is like that as well uh, she's lovely and yeah. gorgeous yep so one of the places that i'd love to chat since we're here in this dare to be human world is one of the things that I know you do is take these principles and mindsets and techniques of improv, as you were just saying a minute ago, out away from the performance space mm -hmm. and into the world and corporate training or into life. So talk to me a little bit about that and how these principles and mindsets have influenced your life or how you apply it with clients. Well, First of all, the hard thing is 
most clients are looking for us to deliver something that we can't deliver when we're booking the business. So that is, what's the agenda? What exercises are you going to do? How are these exercises are going to go? How do you know that? Well, what are they going to learn from that? Uh, we'll see doesn't get a contract. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Another thing is I use improvisation as a mask for like a mild Buddhist practice. <laughs> and so what I'm doing is I'm just trying to be present with the people and because I am the son of a football coach and a nursery school teacher, and I have both of those sensibilities, I do have my own flavors of Buddhism that come with me. And I do have the annoyance. The best thing for me to do to take care of you in the scene is to take care of me in the scene first. Mm -hmm. And that means different things for different people. And that can certainly be used for evil as much as it can be used for good. That's why that's our fallible note that we put into the universe. Yep. But... I believe that this is a service industry and what I'm what I wager on every time I walk into a room is that I can make hot reads on the people and I can do what I need to do that isn't about sticking to an agenda. When I sell clients, I tell them I'm coming in with a playbook, not an agenda, because I'm going to model the skills that you want your people to have, which is to be able to be adaptive, be agile in the moment to go with where the conversation wants to go in order to hit the objective and whether that's a sale or whether that's deeper understanding or whether that's um, sharing values as a leader to your team can you have a script can you have engineering but still find the jazz i have a lot of friends that do applied improvisation and what i do is integrated improvisation so that's that's a piece of my website that's about to go live say, say more about integrated improvisation it's tied to the annoyance in that I believe that the best trainers in front of a room are the trainers that I'm interested in training and working with are people that do have stage experience. You know, there's trainers that are trainers that, that have done some improv and there's improvisers that have done some training and like I've done a lot of both. But because of how I teach to give examples to people that are working based on experiences that I can relate from the stage succinctly mm. and to draw parallels between the stage and my clients, which are the audience, and the emotional response that might be laughter, but might be something else. When I can talk in terms of the metaphor that theater gives to your business world, and when my clients laugh, or when my clients go, oh, or when my clients go, oh, that's the sound of buy-in. And what I'm here to do, what was that? <laughs> Something important happened. Sound of buy-in. Sound of buy-in. Oh, that was the sound of buy-in. <laughs> Searching internet for buy-in. <laughs> so the sound of my client's buy-in lets me know that my jazz is successful. The other thing is laughter is a result of tension broken. So whenever tension is broken, that also results in the audience reaction. So what that means is buy-in is a result of tension broken. So this is why you have an improviser who's here in front of you teaching you presentation skills, leadership skills, authentic presence, leadership presence, whatever I'm teaching. I'm teaching you that the tension that you're standing in is a good thing and it's yours. So integrated improvisation means I am in improvisation now. I'm not applying a skill and I'm, and I'm down with applying for sure. Um, I'm just a bigger nerd, I think. <laughs> Improvisation is a state. Improvisation is a process. It's a process, not a product, or the product is the process. Mm -hmm. Improvisation is a service, 
industry. So for corporate people, what is the nature of the service that you're providing? And improvisation also comes in three buckets, all of which are ways that you already improvise as a corporate person, as a scientist, even as an actuary. And the three buckets are games and exercises, stories, and scenes. And scenes are just uh, exploring a relationship. So all of those are easier for me to bring people into through the idea of integration rather than the idea of application. Because for me, integration fits because application gives them a chance to model what my psychological truth is, which is dissociating. Mm. So, there, so there's my deep answer. <laughs> it sounds like to me that integration is about you are whole and in your space, and then you're connecting or bringing people into the space as opposed to they're in their world and you're slapping a veneer on top of. Am I getting that right? Yes. So... I can teach yes and is that exercise where we we yes and each other and we and we and we and we but i can also teach yes and as a mindset where they never say the words yes and right. we all can so then it comes to like every teacher has to be improv can teach itself i mean rule number one of solidifying yourself as a beginning improv teacher is get out of the way and let improv work mm. and then go through those horrible five years where you try to talk and explain too much to find your voice as an improv teacher. <laughs> and then 10 years after that is like compensating for like, well, what does improv need for me to be in order for these people to have access to it? And so integration means I can be aware of con seemingly conflicting rules because many things can be true at the same time. The, I mean, the best Keith and Dell example is Keith says, trust your obvious. And Dell says, don't make the obvious choice, make the interesting choice. So at first glance, I agree with Keith, because who the hell has time? You know, interesting. How the hell do I know? But how do you even know? But sometimes the obvious choice and the interesting choice are the same. And sometimes the obvious choice is not the choice to make because you're being led down a path that is having this person avoid what is present in here. So what's the interesting choice? What's A to C to get this person to be present, for example? So I can believe both of those things, even though they seem to be at odds. I can also take care of you first in the scene before I know who I am, but I'm so ingrained with knowing who I am. I know one thing for sure. When I'm teaching an audience that's higher status, that's more suited up, that's more like East Coast financial advisors and commercial real estate developers and shit like that. I'm very happy to be underestimated in the first X amount of time when they interact with me because those men, male, 40 to 70 year old guys, this is what I call judo instead of karate. Like let their egos thump their chest and, and see themselves as superior. And then when they're not looking, drop them right on the mat and make, <laughs> and make them face everything that they're afraid of that puts them in that posture to begin with. And how to do that? I do it, but I can't tell you how. And I don't even know if it's going to work until I'm there. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, you give them experiences and then let them have. Yeah, and I make them examine their own mind. I think because my parents were my parents, I became very good at reading minds and intentions and objectives and agendas and fears. And I think I bring that into a classroom, whether it's with improvisers or corporate people. One of the things you referenced a few minutes ago 
has been on my mind. It feels to me as the field of applied improv or taking improvisational principles and mindsets and activities away from a performance space out into the wild in various ways. As that's happened and developed over the last couple of decades, one of the things that's happened is mindfulness and meditation, Buddhist practice and the world of improvisation have integrated mm -hmm. themselves more and more. There are a number of people doing that work. Mm -hmm. Ted Maison has a book on it. I know there are a couple of other books and folks who are doing things. And I, I feel like I'm coming late to that movement. I sort of put my toes in the meditation water unsuccessfully a couple of times. And now just sort of this year, I'm starting to rediscover it. And one of the things that I'm like, duh, like, of course, is that sort of like when I got my coaching certification, I'm like, oh, it's just the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, as I found teachers who are helping me discover meditation and value it as opposed to just like going rogue and trying to start meditating. As I learn about it, I'm like, oh, it's just what I've been doing as an improviser. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same thing with therapy. I had my first therapy almost 30 years ago. And at least I've had probably close to like 20 therapists or counselors. Every fucking time there's a point where I go, wait a minute, am I still learning this? Is this what I'm, am I still working on this? I thought I cleared that off. I thought I, what? <sighs> I need to go to a festival and play. <laughs> <laughs> Integrated speaks to sort of my brand and who I am that runs around the world. I integrate Johnstone and Close and Annoyance and Playback and uh, Jokes and Bits. And so internally it speaks to what I teach and how I teach. I think externally, though, it also has an implication. And where I'm going with this is to have a collection of friends and people, none of whom look alike, none of whom are oriented necessarily in the same way, but I'm going to start with a collective of people, some of whom I've already had preliminary conversations with, to address the DINE or DEI or diversity and inclusion and equity. Equity, equity. thank you. Places. Because <laughs> my idea here is, I think it's a tenet of integrated improvisation is harmony over unity. And I realized we couldn't be the United States of America if we had tried to be the harmonious states of America. I know that would not have flown with the British and that would have not been impressive to a king we were trying to separate from. <laughs> but harmony is where the jazz is. And unity is a false promise, pardon me, it's a false promise forwarded by a patriarchal structure that goes back thousands of years. I think unity is a rallying cry that speaks to a testosterone need to control others. And I think harmony is a more feminine instinct that speaks to the reality of the world. And I said this on another thing somewhere, but to paraphrase my therapist, I was talking about like, especially in this last year, I've made so many connections or friendships for people I really haven't met that much in public and that I found people like you. I mean, this is the perfect example, both of you. It's just like, oh, this thing that exists and we've never just really sat and had a beer or anything. And my therapist, to paraphrase her, she said, real true friendships come from, is that my stomach growling or is it? It's my dog snoring. Oh, I love it. I'll get to the point, dog. I promise I'll get to the point. <laughs> 
really subtle, Chester. No, dogs, no. <laughs> True friendships and connection can be measured by the degree to which you can all sit in discomfort together. I mean, this whole freaking pandemic is just a whole bunch of discomfort. So what will we do? And everybody has different coping mechanisms. We've all been to funerals and different people need to process a funeral in the same way. For me, the pandemic meant I'm not ready to start doing short form as soon as isolation begins. Like I, I'm old enough and have been waiting all my life to discover how to acknowledge grief and how to acknowledge loss. And I've never been able to feel sadness or missing or longing or anger or I just the consequence of, of my, this is all Brene Brown shit, by the way. Uh, the consequence of my coping mechanisms has just been like, don't feel unless you're on stage. And so really the pandemic, I couldn't even get on screen for three months. And there's a group of us that tour and we meet like once a month online. And it's just this grieving. It's like a group therapy. And it's sad and it's sharing sadness and the discomfort of the, everything is different now so that we can accept what is and just be present. And one of the things is like, I've never put a lot of stock in hope because hope is not here, <laughs> but I do put stock in like appreciating what this moment is and then intellectually knowing there'll be an end to this. And if it doesn't give me comfort to look forward to something, it doesn't mean that I'm less of anything than anybody else. And I don't begrudge anybody if that's what they need to believe. But it, if that causes me discomfort and somebody else joy, then the discomfort is, can we coexist as friends and still hold those two truths to us? And that's, that was my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is funny. Yeah, this is improv, isn't it? <laughs> totally. Well, what I love um, about what I love about the sort of discomfort and just as we're as we're kind of talking and going into this history and and all the people who've built it and how it's this paradox that we can go as as deep and neurological and theories and everything as we want, or it can be just as simple as right, like do the next thing or listen and, and respond. I found there was like the second phase after I first got into improv, and it was just that pure honeymoon joy phase where you're like I've discovered this thing that's changed my life my eyes are open see everything differently blah blah and then the next phase is like okay now I want to get good at it it's like that second thing so I'm like yep. I'm buying all the books I'm reading all of it I'm doing all of this and I felt this block as I started to to get into it where I'm like I feel like I'm losing something by really deeply exploring these in a certain way where and where I've had to learn to coexist in that discomfort of having that knowledge but also recognizing that part of the like the experience and the magic is allowing that there is mystery to it sort of this is sort of where I'm at in a spiritual place that it's beautiful that there is mystery I love sitting in that discomfort of there isn't a label there isn't a word for it it's not one thing it's always going to be constantly changing and I still sometimes feel that discomfort of like am I thinking about it too much am I going too deep into it do I need to just let it go and just let it be a mystery and have it be this magical like you said I need to just go to a, a festival and just play for a little bit and then eventually landing on like oh wow so I can't believe it's always both what <laughs> it's always a balance of something and it's a paradox what that's only everything <laughs> like, yeah. who knew this would be true for this yeah that's 
One of Susan Messing's best teaching monologues is the biorhythm of improviser awareness, which I, I won't even dare to recreate. But at the point you just pointed out, she uses the words, now I'm going to take this seriously and work at it. I'm really going to work at playing. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm an improviser. And my why, my Simon Sinek why is to make the world smaller. I improvise to make the world smaller. And so part of that means I aspire to be able to show up anywhere in the world in any language in any culture and be of service to those people that are doing whatever improvisation is. And I'll see what that is when I get there. And there's also, I have preferences and there's things that I, <laughs> and I love the dog snoring. I have preferences and my preferences are just rooted in opinions, but if I'm truly an improviser, there's no warm up that I hate more than bunny fucking bunny. <laughs> but if I walk into the theater that night and they're doing bunny bunny before the show, then I've learned how to throw a switch and it's my favorite warm up game in the world. <laughs> and I feel like that's I became an adult when I was 55 and I finally accepted I can do bunny bunny and treat it like it's the greatest best idea for a warm-up in the world yeah. <laughs> that is the measure of, a, of an adult <laughs> my, my adultness is measured yes. by my willingness to bunny, play bunny, bunny bunny that is clearly the measure of an adult <laughs> we figured it out you guys. we have figured it out what's the answer bunny 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 Fucking bunny bunny and and if you you are listening and you don't know what bunny bunny is write to us and we will send you oh, yes. the activity for you to play with your loved ones in your house. <laughs> We're going to be hurtling towards the end of our time together, but sure. I can't let you go without us talking about story and your mm -hmm. story chain. We do story circles and you do story chain, which are yeah. sort of sister activities that yeah. are some of our very favorites. Will you tell us about your story chain? Sure. So out of this grief thing of being in the pandemic, Somebody reminded me that in the IO book, Art by Committee, there's a DVD of examples of like 12 different formats that came out of IO. One of those formats is the Armando, and I had forgotten that I'm the Armando doing the monologues in oh, this no. freaking book. And they asked me, would you teach us Armando monologues and stories? I'm like, yeah, sure. And I also did stand-up for nine years or something, partly as out of the idea, well, I can either pay a therapist to listen to this shit, or I can <laughs> tell jokes based on this stuff and get paid for it, but uh, a flawed strategy. Story Chain is based on a show that we did in the 90s at Annoyance. And I've adapted it as a mode to reconnect with people from around the world that I toured with, as well as people that are in their extended communities. And then my Joe Bill Teaches page has like 1800 or something people on it. And people are like, when are you going to teach? When are you going to teach? I don't feel like teaching. We need to share stories and like celebrate our human connection and, you know, grieve together. Uh, really uplifting. I didn't say that, but that was my agenda. So I did the first one and it's everybody comes together. I have a theme because I'm slightly OCD. I'm OC small d, Lisa <laughs> Rowan calls me. And so I like to have a theme. And so we start with a check-in. So who are you? Where are you? And then what's the theme? And it'll be, you know, if you were a cocktail, what would that cocktail be called? And what would be in it? Or this last week, we just did, what's a song that represents you this week? And everybody put a song in the YouTube or in the chat. And then a woman in Montreal made a Spotify list. And it's amazing to listen to like 32 songs that are everything from Ella Fitzgerald to Pantera. Like it's insane. Wow. 
so everybody checks in and then I'll give a theme and let me see, I have some of them. Did you do the one with Ireland where we did it from Ireland? Yes, I think so. So that because both my my grandmothers are Irish, the, the first theme was my grandmother. And then I'll send people into breakout rooms, hopefully of four people per breakout room in a 15 minute round. Whoever's inspired to tell the first story, they speak first. You tell a story, it's about three and a half minutes. And then of the remaining three people in there, the thing that makes it a chain is whoever's inspired by something in the first story, say what that is, and then you tell your story and so on down the line. And then in a very mild improv sort of way, sometimes themes emerge that are all in one room. And then when people come back and then I'm trying to mix the groups up and so everybody's with new people and then, as I say, failing at that, people are sharing what themes come up. So with grandmothers, like, you know, strong women with foul mouths and a whiskey in their hand or all of our grandmothers taught us to dance or whatever. And then I'll come up with whatever the next theme is. And so it's usually three rounds of 15 minutes, different people in different rounds. And it's just become a thing that is you know, it's more than I could have ever imagined. And there's oftentimes at the end, you know, we're just sharing tears and I do it every other Friday. We go into the weekend feeling a sense of connection. Like it fulfills my most selfish need, which is to feel connected to my tribe mates in the world. Does that explain it? Does that make sense? Livia, were you there this week? Yes, this past week? I was going to say, yeah, I went, I went this past week. And when I first came in, it felt like we were on a quad and I felt like I had wandered into like there were people sitting in a circle and it felt like no one said anything. They just motioned <laughs> and I came and sat down and I was like, oh, OK. And then just very that's what it felt like when I entered the Zoom room. <laughs> and I very quickly had to not had to, but I noticed it brought out a lot of I'm very much. Another way I'm similar to you is I very much, I may feel on stage and then off stage, it's like, shut down the tears, put up the wall, not going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so in the one group we were in, we ended up, or the second round we were in, I think the prompt was, well, that woke me up. And we ended up talking about pet loss. And, uh, and that ended up being right. So I don't know. I, I put up the wall and I've been thinking about it a lot because I was like, why didn't I, cause that's like the one thing that I will allow myself in the world to, to open up about is that kind of thing. And I still put up the wall, but I'm like, oh, that was so important. And it felt so good. And it was, so that's a little bit of my experience. It was just lovely. And it was lovely to see that in the two sections I was in, the people who were inspired to share the story next, it was amazing how many elements were in parallel to the other story where it was like if something if it was like you know a mirror shattered and mm. then someone yelled at me what's the story then the next story would be like oh the shadow the, the yelling at me reminded of something but then something else also shattered in that situation but that's not what inspired me and just finding all of these it's that magic it's that mystery and i'm still not gonna cry i'm still not gonna cry <laughs> until no. Exit. Exactly. Oh, Shut that down. Wait until you're <laughs> wait until you're going to bed. The lights are off. You say goodnight and then just let the tears. I need an hour of Alicia Keys and full on sobbing to get yes. through the rest of this day. <laughs> yeah, it's not unusual for people to find like shared grief in some of these rooms and just and my daughter is fifteen now, but I mean ever since she's been born I cry every day. And I've just found that like, oh my God, I was really never allowed to cry when I was young. And I love it. 
Like I just yeah. love like feeling it coming and just letting myself cry. And so I'm so, I'm just so happy you had that experience. Yeah. And I'm so in a way, a bit in a bigger picture, like I want, if story chain can be a gateway to more curated stories and I'm not sure what story circle is or, and now like reuniting with Orla in Ireland, who I was friends with 25 years ago, and they do this moth and butterfly thing where it's yeah. Irish stories. I mean, stories are literally everything. Johnstone is stories or everything and Dell was patterns or everything. And guess what? They're the patterns are just stories stories. (laughs) and stories are patterns. There's like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So many things could be true at the same time. And um, one thing that's true is I really have loved talking to both of you. We have loved talking to you. I'm not going to cry because it's over. I'm going to be grateful because it happened. As they say tonight. We'll cry tonight. I'm fully appreciating this. And there's nothing that ever prevents us from being in contact with each other more. And now you're both on the permanent, uh, I'll bug you and let you know, here's another story chain coming up in a week or two. Absolutely. We will be there as often as we can. We will make sure we know you have a new and improved website coming soon. Yeah. So we will make sure that everybody can link to that in the notes. Uh, It's integratedimprovisation.com. It's still it's still getting tweaked. Um, Casey Beeler from Austin, Texas, from Parallelogramophonograph is the one that built it for me. And she's amazing. So shout out to her. I'm also on Facebook at Joe Bill Teaches. That's where the notifications for Story Chain are. I'll accept donations, but you can come for free. Yeah, I think those are the two things. I'm not I, I hate Twitter. I'm about to, like, deactivate my Twitter account and. Yeah, let's get through this day and I will be glowing from this for the rest of the day. So thank you both. Oh, us too. I highly, highly recommend signing up for a story chain with Joe Bill and the amazing group of people that have magnetically gravitated towards him. Um, We'll link to all of that. Uh, in the show notes, Facebook page, how to get there, his fancy new website, and um, sign up when you can. Oh, yeah, so many great things. We also mentioned briefly story circles, which are our group storytelling activity that we offer. We are doing those on the second Monday of every month based around a theme, and they're sort of business-focused, kind of or sort of applied improv focused at least. So we pick a theme every month and we get a group of people together and we share real life experiences inspired by that theme and then do a little bit of debriefing to uh, tease out the, the insights and associations and themes that we gather from hearing each other's stories and think about how we might apply that to whatever curiosities or challenges we're facing out in our world. So uh, you can find out more about that simply by um, emailing us at hello at daretobehuman.com or hello at copit.com mm-hmm. or just go to our website, copit.com or search around for story circles and you'll find us. Yep. It's on Eventbrite. <laughs> you should yep. see. Yep. Uh, previous topics include uh, feedback, purpose, hope uh, and upcoming that may have happened by the time you hear this are uh, money and power oh yes so just you know like fancies nothing big or serious no (laughs) 
Not at all. Uh, on that note, on big and serious, I did want to touch on briefly the the exercise bunny bunny that was brought up in in Joe Bill's uh, interview. I I appreciate so much his ability to jump in and and find the love in that. For those who don't know, Bunny Bunny involves standing in a circle uh, with a bunch of people, as many exercises do, and send uh, kind of creating this group chant together using various uh, words and movements. One of those words being Bunny Bunny, Bunny Bunny, where you pass it, you're passing it from yourself to other people. And without fail, I think every time we've played it, it gets faster and faster and turns into this just crazed kind of uh, chanting circle that then ends in an eruption of, of laughter. Yes, it's um, uh, nonsense yes. silliness. Yep. And it takes a strong, stoic man <laughs> to insert himself into the wackiness that is Bunny Bunny and let himself be swept along. Mm-hmm. So. so send us your bunny bunny stories or your uh, if you have exercises or activities or anything that you just do <laughs> that are not your favorite, <laughs> but you're able to get through it and you're able to jump in. We want to know. We want to hear. Even if it is bunny bunny, we can start a support group and that's right. we won't stand in a circle and play it. But. Excellent. We have so many exciting things coming up, including pretty soon it will be our 50th episode and we have all sorts of cool things planned for that. So stick with us. Thanks for being here. Like us, spread the word, give us positive reviews. We're so grateful that you're here and we would love to have you join the conversation. See you next time. Bye.